Everybody has it. First Corinthians 13, one through seven. This is God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you this morning as the righteous God, the judge of the whole universe, and the lawgiver. We praise you for your law. Uh, we praise you that it is holy, righteous, and good. And we praise you for your son who came to this earth and fulfilled your law on our behalf. Uh, Father, as we look at what it means for love to be the fulfillment of the law, uh, we pray as always that the spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the son of God. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So in these verses, the Apostle Paul is talking about the absolute necessity of love for authentic Christian experience. The absolute necessity of love for authentic Christian experience. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, here, the Apostle Paul is talking to a group of people who they valued the gift of tongues uh, to the point where those who had the gift were looking down on those who didn't have it. Uh, and so in this verse, verse one, the Apostle Paul comes directly at the very thing, the very spiritual gift that the church at Corinth was uh, prone to glory in. And his point is easy to see that minus love the exercise of this gift is absolutely worthless. But not only, he doesn't say here that uh, the gift itself is worthless, but in verse 3 he says, if I have all of this spiritual giftedness but have not love, I, the possessor of the gift, am nothing or worthless. In verses 1 and 2 he's talking about Great spiritual giftedness, right? Great spiritual giftedness. In verse 2, he says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, one thing about this passage is absolute, there's a scary sense in this passage. And the scary thing about this passage is that you can be spiritually gifted and genuinely have spiritual gifts, but not actually have the saving grace of God on your life. You can have genuine spiritual giftedness but not actually have the saving grace of God on your life. We know this from the example of Judas. Perfect example of this principle. When Jesus, remember when Jesus sent out the 12 to go and to cast out 
demons and to do miraculous works in his name. Judas was right there along with them. And I believe that he was at work exercising spiritual giftedness right in the midst of the apostles. There's a reason why when Jesus said uh, the night before he when, when he was betrayed, there's a reason why when he said someone at this table is going to betray me. It's not like all the disciples looked right at Judas and was like, oh, it's him. We know it's him. No. They looked around. They were like, is it me? Like, who, who is it, Lord? It wasn't. See, we're able to look in hindsight at a Judas and see that it was him. But the point is, Judas, the son of perdition, exercised spiritual giftedness right along with the rest of the apostles. And yet we see that he was condemned in the end. Great spiritual giftedness. We also see that you can perform the greatest performances, humanly speaking, in verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Think about that. If I give away all that I have, we're talking the greatest acts of philanthropy possible is to take all of your possessions and to give them away for the benefit of another. The Apostle Paul here says you can do that, but minus the virtue of Christian love, it's meaningless. On a human level, there's nothing greater than the ultimate sacrifice, giving up your body to, to the flames to be burned. Again, without love, you gain absolutely nothing. It doesn't take the grace of God, the saving grace of God on your life to want to do great performances. You can have all kinds of motives for service. There's suicide bombers every single day who give away their body and not saved. And so the Apostle Paul is talking about having the greatest spiritual giftedness in verse 1 and 2, and then also having the greatest human performances in verse 3, and says that all of it is vain minus the virtue of Christian love. Listen to this quote from D.A. Carson concerning uh, spiritual giftedness. He says, if Paul were addressing the modern church, perhaps he would extrapolate further. You Christians who prove your spirituality by the amount of theological information you can cram into your heads, I tell you that such knowledge by itself proves nothing. And you, who affirm the Spirit's presence in your meetings because there is a certain style of worship, if your worship patterns are not expressions of love, you are spiritually bankrupt. You, who insist that speaking in tongues attests to a second work of the Spirit, I tell you that if love does not characterize your life, there is not evidence of even a first work of the Spirit. Nothing distinctly Christian in and of itself about weighty theological knowledge. Our, our Bible students can tell you, our seminarians can tell you, this country is filled with seminary professors who know the Bible back and forth. Not saved. Not saved. Now, most of us tend to fall in one or another of these categories. So... Usually there's, there's the group of people on the side of theological knowledge um, who embrace that and um, use that as our trump card. Um, and, and those who, um, who would attempt to be, we, we would call them pragmatists, say, ah, you're just, you know, you're just all about doing these, these works, but you're not about sharing the gospel. We're, but we're about you know, theological information and, and the weighty, weighty truths of the word of God. Right. You have that side. People tend to that side. Then 
You have the other side who, no, it's, it's not anything about, forget doctrine. It's just about what you do. What are you doing? What's, what's going on with your hands and your feet? Are you being the hands and feet of Jesus? Here, the Apostle Paul rebukes both groups and says that it doesn't matter what side you fall on, minus the virtue of Christian love, it's meaningless. Both of these things can be done apart from love, and when that happens, we fall short of authentic Christianity. We're not even in the faith, and it, like this is important. This is, a, uh, this is an opportunity here for self-examination. Like, where are we today? Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, says that loving God and loving neighbor as oneself On these two depend all the law and the prophets. The whole Bible is based on this principle of love toward God and toward neighbor. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So here we see that, like, this this idea of, uh, I just, I love my God, but I can't stand people. Like, they don't go together. Loving people is a result of loving God. If you don't love people, it's evidence that you don't know God. We're talking about being in the faith or not in the faith here. There's no, it's, not, it's, like, like, not, it's not like there's two groups of Christians. You have the loving Christians. <laughs> and then you have those over here who don't love at all. No, to be a Christian is to love. It's what it means to be in the faith. And this is a principle that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19. I'm going to read verse 11 and 12 and 16 and 18. Verse 11 of Leviticus 19, it says, You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Verse 16, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is not simply a New Testament, lovey-dovey, Jesus kind of thing. This goes all the way back to the beginning. It's always been about loving. Because you can keep the law as much as you want, but if you're not loving, you're missing the whole point of the law. Now, in our text, 1 Corinthians 13, as we go through these various characteristics of love, and this here is it's, it's not exhaustive. Um, it's uh, uh, just a general list um, uh, it doesn't include everything possible here, but uh, it does give us a, a good idea of what love looks like. Uh, we're going to briefly describe them, and then we're going to apply this idea of love your neighbor as yourself to it. Uh, and then we'll look at how uh, Jesus fulfills this passage. Verse 4, it says, love is patient. We'll stop right there. Love is patient. Literally, long-suffering. The idea here is uh, enduring injuries without retaliating. The same form of this word is actually used of God in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Speaking of God's long-suffering, his kindness, the riches of his kindness and his patience towards sinners. Now, love being patient, love um, actually 
taking time and bearing with another person, walking with another person through their um, uh, weaknesses and the ways that they fall short. Let's apply that principle. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it makes sense, right? It makes sense that love would be patient because we want people to be patient with us, right? We're also patient with people that we love. (laughs) Think about a mother and a child. It's really, humanly speaking, I, I can't think of a better example of something that's the closest thing to biblical love, the love between a mother and a child. When a child is just learning to walk, a good parent, a loving parent, is not going to smack the child upside the head because they're not getting it right the first time around. No, the parent's going to be patient with the child. The parent's going to allow the child to stumble, allow the child to fall and get up. And that parent, if it's a good parent, is going to walk with that child until the child is actually able to walk on their own. And even after they're able to walk on their own, on their own the parent's going to hold the child's hand as, they, as they're walking across the street. That's what love does. Love is patient. We want people to be patient with us, and we're patient with people that we love. But yet, why is it that as soon as somebody does anything to annoy us, we just want to bring it up to them often? No grace. No grace whatsoever. Quick to bring up people's offenses. Almost like ready to pounce, like just waiting for somebody to do me wrong so I can let them know about themselves. But biblical love is patient. It's long-suffering, enduring injuries without retaliating even. Verse 4, love is kind. Love is kind. This idea here is a a disposition of goodwill towards somebody. Like just ready to do good towards others. It goes beyond just doing good towards others to a further degree of doing good to others even when others are not doing good to you. A disposition of doing good. I think also implied in this is uh, not just the action or not just the disposition of doing good things, but there's also a heart attitude involved here. Like just just kindness. Like it's, it's not even that deep. <laughs> Love is kind. That means it's not it's not mean spirited. It's not, it's not grumpy and grouchy and just, like some of us, like we, we just mean for, for no good reason. Just mean. And then we rationalize being mean or being unpleasant by saying, oh, I was in a bad mood. As if that justifies our being mean. This commandment to be kind is not dependent upon our mood. It's not like love is kind only when it's in a good mood. No, love is kind. Oftentimes we rationalize, we rationalize our meanness or our grumpiness by what time of the day it is. Oh, I'm, I'm just not a morning person. <laughs> I'm just not a morning person. So talk to me after 10. After I've had my my Starbucks. (laughs) But in this verse, we don't see any parameter. It doesn't say love is kind after 10 (laughs) a.m. Imagine if you woke up in the morning expecting to receive the favor and the mercies of God, which are new every single morning, and you didn't receive them. And then God looked at you and said, hey, I'm not a morning person. (laughs) No, we we expect God to always be that way towards us. 
Love is kind. It's not even that deep. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We see here uh, the Apostle Paul applies this concept of kindness towards forgiveness. Towards forgiveness. That is, even when somebody has actually offended us or actually wronged us, we're called to have a disposition to do good towards them. And not only that, but a disposition or of, of affection, genuine affection towards them. And so let's apply the same principle. Love your neighbor as yourself. We don't like it when people are mean and crabby towards us. So why would we be that way towards others? We don't like it when people are, are, uh, don't forgive us or have an unforgiving attitude towards us when, when, we're, when we're in the wrong. Don't you hate that? When somebody tries to keep you in their debt when you've done them wrong? Or will hold out forgiveness but hold it out only conditionally? Yeah, I forgive you, but you better. Bag, yo. Hey, we don't like it when people treat us like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 4, love does not envy or boast. Envy, you know, we, we, and it's interesting that these two are put right next to each other because we tend to envy those who are above us, and then we tend to boast over people that we think are, be, are below us. Right? So if somebody has something more than what we have, like we, we want it. But not only do we want it, but we want it only for ourselves, and we don't want them to have it. Now, there's, there's something really evil and twisted about that. Envy is one of those sins that slept on, but it shows up in almost all of Paul's bad lists. We just saw it in uh, Galatians 5. It's, it's also included in Romans 1. At the end of Romans 1, where it says that those who do such things deserve to die. Envy is on that list. Listen to this quote from James Boyce. He says, if we loved other people, we would want good things for them rather than letting their good things make us want more for ourselves. I'll read that again. If we loved other people, we would want good things for them rather than letting their good things make us want more for ourselves. Let's apply the test. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you have something, when you receive something, some favor or blessing from God, like you don't want people to be envious of you. I hope not. <laughs> you don't want people to want whatever that blessing is to be taken away from you and given to them? Because you feel like, Dad, like you, don't, you don't even love me. Like, you're, you're angry that I've received blessing? That's crazy. And then boasting, same thing. That's one thing we hate. We hate somebody who is just arrogant, braggadocious. Like even the world, like in the sports world, like the, the sports players who are just arrogant, like they get frowned on by the media because of their arrogance and because of their boastfulness. In, in, in football, if you, if you score a touchdown but then behave arrogantly, like you get whistled for a flag, unsportsmanlike conduct. Like, nobody wants somebody to be rubbing something in their face all the time. Boasting. Boasting over those that we think have less than us. Finding cute ways or subtle ways to brag about what we have. Verse 4 says, love is not arrogant. 
literally puffed up. A while ago, we spoke about the great sin being pride and how pride is the source of other vices. Ultimately, um, all of these things, all of these things that are contrary to Christian love, like they originate with the self. They originate with pride, with I and with me. It's, it's self-focused rather than others-focused. Arrogant. High opinion of ourselves. That's not love. Verse 5, it's not rude. That is, it doesn't behave improperly towards others. But it behaves in a manner that is proper. And fitting. Again, like this, this stuff is not deep. Like, it's kind. It's patient. It's not, it's not proud and puffed up and arrogant and haughty. It's not rude. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. We don't want people to be rude to us. As soon as somebody slights us, as soon as the lady in the checkout counter, as soon as she doesn't say thank you, I'm looking at her like, I just paid my money, and you're not going to even say thank you? We hate it when people are rude towards us, cutting us off in traffic. We speak, they don't speak back. How dare they? Who they think they are? Love is not rude. <laughs> Verse 5, it does not insist on its own way. It's not literally self-seeking. Self-seeking. No, what love does is love seeks the benefit of others. Love looks away from seeking for self, and it seeks how may I be of help or benefit to somebody else. Don't we, don't, we, don't we hate it when people are just always, like, you just get the sense, like, Dad, yo, it's just all about you. It's just all about your ambition and your goals and what you want to do. And you don't care who you hurt, and you don't care, like, what you do on the way to getting what you want. Like, we can't stand that when we see it in other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not irritable, verse 5. That is, easily angered. Man, I could spend some time. Actually, each one of these is a sermon in themselves. We just, we just have a, it's just an overview, just a sketch. Love is not irritable. It's not easily offended. Easily angered. You know, like walking on eggshells with someone because they're just so unpredictable you don't know when they're going to blow up you have to be hesitant to say anything to them because they'll just fly off the handle so you have to walk gingerly around them particularly like anybody who's ever been in in an abusive situation Physical or emotional. I'm sure this resonates. Unpredictable. The households, the pain in the households where there is an angry person there. Growing up in that kind of house. Like you don't know, you don't know how to react. Love is not easily angered. It's Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. It says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Slow to anger. Many of us are way too thin-skinned, y'all. We don't have thick skin. We are ready to let people have it the very moment they do anything to cross us. 
in our minds what we think is crossing us. That's not, that's not a Christian spirit. That's the works of the flesh. Verse 5, after irritable, it's not resentful. That is, once the wrong has been done, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. There's not this catalog or list of sins that we've held on to and we're ready to pull, pull it out as soon as you do, some, do it again. True love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And again, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't you hate it? Don't you hate it when you're talking to somebody or you get into a dispute with somebody about something and they bring up something from two years ago? Yeah, what, like, wait, what does that have to do with... I thought you said you forgave me. Like, like why are you reaching into your Rolodex to, to bring back stuff? And you, like, we hate that when people do that to us. Bring up stuff against us. Holding stuff against us. Not saying anything, but they're holding stuff against us. It's not loving. There's at least three ways that we can respond when we've been actually been sinned against. One way, we've already seen it in Proverbs chapter 1911. So we have a scenario, somebody, a brother or a sister has done me wrong, and there's a couple of ways I can handle it. First way, you know what I could do? And I, I, think, I think this is the best way, if at all possible. You know what? This person did something wrong to me, and you know what? I would be in my rights to actually bring it up to them, but you know what? God has forgiven me. I'm called to forgive them. This is my brother or my sister. You know what? I'm not even going to bring it up. I'm, I'm going to overlook it. Love covers a multitude of sins. So you know what? I'm going to fall back. I'm, I'm, I'm not even, you know what? Let's just keep it going. And I'm not going to bring it up to myself. I'm not going to bring it up to you. And I'm not going to bring it up to others. Just going, yep, just let it slide. That's glorious. That's God-like. That takes the spirit of God at work within us to be able to have that response. It's one way we can handle it. Another way we can handle it is this person has wronged me. They've offended me. And you know what? I need to let this person know that I'm offended because it's produced a breach in the relationship. And so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to this person and I'm going to lovingly, I'm, it's not going to be in the heat of the moment when I'm at my most angry, but I'm going to fall back on it, breathe, and then I'm going to approach this person in love and let them know, brother, sister, you know what, what you said, it, it, it offended me. What you did, it, it offended me. And, and I have to let you know because I want to continue in our fellowship together as brothers and sisters. Banging. That's a banging biblical response. A third way is what we're talking about here. Irritability, resentful, going in anger to the person, ha haven't prayed about it at all. The only thing on your mind is that you've been wronged. And so because you've been wronged, you're going to wrong this person in return. And then you just fly off the handle at them, whether it be verbally or whatever. That's not Christian. That's not Christian love. Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. That is, it's not, it's not overly preoccupied with pointing out what's wrong. It doesn't take delight in constantly uh, festering and con conjuring up conversations only about that which is wrong. When I think of this, I think of just like a, a critical spirit, a, a, a complaining kind of spirit. You know what I'm saying? Like you ever get around people and it's like, hey, 
This is always negative. Spending mad time talking about, oh, man, did you see so-and-so? A hot mess. (laughs) And then going on and on and on about the hot mess, right? Mm Mm-mm. That's not love. Love doesn't rejoice in evil. Love doesn't take delight in that which is wrong. But rather, verse 6, love rejoices in the truth. And literally here, it's, it, it, it can be rendered, it joins others in rejoicing in the truth. May we be a community of people who join each other and, and rally around rejoicing in the truth. Why is it that we can spend mad time together cutting other people down, pointing out other people's sin, pointing out other people's wrong, but then when it comes time to rally around the things of the faith, it's like it doesn't, it doesn't last as long. Oftentimes the things of the faith come up and there's crickets. It's like, Amen. But then we talk about something wrong. We can go on for hours and hours. Love joins others in rejoicing in the truth. Verse 7, it bears all things. That is, it goes through the wars, the ups and the downs. It remains committed. It's not going to leave when things get tough one of our core values, right? Commitment. How often is it that we see that people are with us and they're smiling with us and it's good? It seems like things are, like we have a good rapport going. And then you do one thing in their mind to offend them and they out. Maybe not one, maybe three. But the call of the Lord is we're to forgive 70 times 7. 70 times 7. Think about that. And that's that's our Lord using uh, hyperbole to show, look, a person can come against you and they can sin and they can offend you. And if they come to you and ask for your forgiveness, you're supposed to forgive them. If they do it again and ask for your forgiveness, you're supposed to forgive them. Seventy times seven. Not five. You know, what, what do we say? Fool, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. That implies it's not going to be a third time. Uh-uh, twice. Shame on me for two times. And then I'm out. Love bears all things. Verse 7, it believes all things. That is, and it, this, this, is a, oh, this is a biggie. It, it's, it's believing the best about a person. G- giving a person the benefit of the doubt. Not quick to believe the worst. And to think, like, to think the worst of somebody. But to actually say, you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resolve to, like, I know what it looks like, and I know that my mind could go running in a whole bunch of different directions about what this may be. But you know what, I'm going to talk to this brother, and I'm going to hear this brother or sister out before I jump to any conclusions. Because I want to believe the best about them. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we want, right? Like we, we don't want people to immediately jump to conclusions when there's a, a perfectly reasonable explanation. We hate it when people just immediately charge us as guilty. Before even hearing what we had to say, you're already mad. I haven't even, I haven't even had a chance to talk to you about it. And you're already angry with me. And you're acting out on that anger. We don't like it when people do that to us. Believes all things. Again, the mother and child analogy is perfect here. How often do you see, you see this criminal on the news, 
they guilty. You know they guilty. <laughs> like, their hand was caught in the cookie jar. The evidence is on tape. They did it. But yet, you see their mother, and their mother's like, hey, my baby. My baby just wouldn't do something like that. Like, I, I, I know Jerome. And I've known him since he was little. Right? Right? Well, why is that? That's because the mother loves her child. And so because she loves him, she believes the best about him. Even in the face of evidence to the contrary, she loves him. And so she's going to put the best spin on whatever it is. Right? That's what you do with people that you love. And that's what you want people to do to you. You don't want people reading all into your motives for why you did something. Maybe you did do something wrong. But what you, what you hope is that people would not automatically just put the worst spin on what you did, but actually put the, the best. That's what we do for ourselves. We rationalize. <laughs> we rationalize like crazy, y'all. Even when we're wrong. When we know we're wrong. But we'll find a way to put the best, like to make us look the best way possible. We don't give that courtesy to others. Quick to put the worst read. A friend of mine gave me an example of this idea of a charitable read. A charitable read. Imagine you have a situation where you, are, you had a meeting set up with someone, um, and you're waiting for them, and it's, it's getting close to the time, and they haven't shown up. You give them a call, and... They don't answer their phone, and you leave a message. What's good? We're supposed to meet. See you when you get here. Boom. Fifteen minutes go by. They haven't shown up. Thirty minutes goes by. They haven't shown up. Now, at that moment, there's a couple of ways you could look at the situation. The first way is not a good way. Who does he think he is wasting my time like this? Doesn't he know that my time is valuable? I got stuff to do. He's, he's not respecting my time. I guess that's one way you could look at it. But the charitable read, the loving thing would be, you know what? I don't know why this brother or sister is late. Something might have happened. Maybe they're not okay. Maybe I should pray for them. And then when they show up, a couple things you could do. <laughs> Excuse me. Do you see the time? As soon as they walk through the door. Or you could acknowledge that they're late. <laughs> Say, hey, brother, hey, sister, <laughs> hey, I see, I see you running a little late. Is everything okay? <laughs> and you know what? Let's say that after believing all things in this situation, it turns out, you know what? Dad, they just overslept. Well, you know what? At that moment, I can either hold that against them for the rest of the time that we're meeting together, or I could say, you know what? Lord knows how many times I overslept. <laughs> you know what? It's all good, man. Let's, let's get about what we came here to do. A charitable read. That's love hoping all things, love enduring all things. It perseveres. It's a persevering kind of love. Now, as I looked at these characteristics, the, one of the things that jumped into my mind is the Pharisees. I thought about the Pharisees and how the, the picture that you get of the Pharisees or the religious leaders during the days of Jesus was like the opposite of this picture of love here. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, as we get ready to bring this to a close. Mark 
Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Starting at verse 1, speaking of Jesus, it says, Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And look at the Lord's response. It says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. You see the attitude of the Pharisees? So concerned about the law and getting the P's and Q's right that they're not even paying attention to this person here who needs help. This person who needs the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. How how are we going to be angry? Like, look at the Lord's response. He's grieved at the hardness of heart of a group of people who would be angry about somebody being healed. We can become so bound and caught up in our do's and our don't do's that we can actually become pharisaical and become angry when good things, legitimately good things are happening, but we block it out because of a lack of love. Now, back to our text. Anybody convicted? (laughs) Lord was killing me this week with this passage. Well, there's hope. And the hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's briefly consider the Lord Jesus and how he actually fulfills the love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. In verses 1 and 2, we saw the gift, uh, spiritual giftedness. Nobody was more spiritually gifted than our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the scriptures teach that the Lord Jesus had the spirit upon him without measure. The Lord Jesus fulfills this idea of having prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge. Here we know the Apostle Paul is speaking, he's using hyperbole because later on, uh, when he says all mysteries and all knowledge, because later on um, he, he says that we only know in part and we prophesy in part. But Jesus Christ himself is the one in whom all the storehouses and treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. Jesus fulfills verse 2. He certainly fulfills verse 3. If I give away all that I have, the Lord Jesus Christ, he left his heavenly throne, riches beyond imagination. And for our sake, he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ gave away and the father through Christ gave away all that he had. There's no one more valuable than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet the father delivered up his son for us all. No greater gift than the gift of the son of God. If I deliver up my body. Surely we see that in the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross when he gave up his body on our behalf, poured out his blood, died For us, for our sins, even though he was sinless, he died for sinners 
so that we, through his death, might be made alive. Does anybody embody patience as much as the Lord Jesus Christ? Think about the patience of Jesus being holy, as holy as he is. How patient did he have to be to come to a sinful world? As spotless as he is and as much as in his divine nature he hates sin, he subjected himself to 33 years, day in and day out, amongst the filth and sinfulness of a wretched world. How patient was he, day in, day out, around sinners, not giving them what they deserved? How patient has he been in our own lives? How patient was he with you before you came to Christ? In all the years that you lived in sin and rebellion against him, he was patient with you. And his patience and his kindness led you to repentance when you trusted in him and believed in him and came to faith. And then how patient has he been with us since we've been believers? How often have we fallen short as believers? How often have we failed? How often have we spit in his face with our sin when we know what we're doing is wrong? And Jesus has been with us the whole time. Patient, the patience of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus. You want to talk about a disposition of goodwill towards others? I'm rocked at the accounts in Matthew when it says that when, when, the, when the crowds came to Jesus, it says that he healed every disease. Every disease. We're talking about thousands and thousands of people who were coming to him. And it says he healed, he healed them all. We know he was, he, had, he, he was human. He was tired. He would have been well within his right to leave. But he stayed and patiently healed every single sickness and disease. Even people that he knew would just take the blessing and run and not even come back to give him thanks for it. But he still had a disposition of kindness. Jesus never avoided being kind by saying, look, I'm in a bad mood today. No. No. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus certainly never envied. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't proud. But he walked the earth. (laughs) Again, if anybody had a right to be proud, it's the second person of the Trinity, (laughs) the eternal son of God. But yet he walked in humility. Contrast that with the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. In, In Matthew 27, 18, it says that it was out of envy that they delivered Christ up. Jesus' attitude is found in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus isn't arrogant. He's not proud. He's lowly. He's meek. And he's willing to accept anybody who comes to him in repentance and faith. Jesus didn't insist on his own way. He wasn't self-seeking. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, if anybody had the right to be self-seeking, you would think it would be the Lord. The Lord said, No, I'm not even coming to do my own will. I'm coming to do the will of the Father. Jesus wasn't easily angered. Jesus is God. And in Psalm 86, verse 15, speaking of God, it says, You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus doesn't keep record of wrongs. Praise God. Praise God he does not keep a record of our wrongs. Praise God he hasn't kept a record of our wrongs from just this week, let alone our whole Christian lives, let alone our whole lives. But the promise of the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12 is, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's our Jesus. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He doesn't fly. He, he's not capricious. He doesn't fly off the hand. You don't have to walk on eggshells in the sense of him just, just lashing out at us. Why? Because the father lashed out at the son on the cross. That means there's no anger for us. There's no condemnation for us. We're in Christ Jesus. So he, he only has a merciful, gracious attitude towards us. As sinful as we are, how can we not do the same for others? Jesus certainly did not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rather he rejoiced in the truth. Jesus definitely bears all things. <laughs> we see it in his life. We see what he had to go through in order to redeem sinners like you and me. Not only that, but he continues to bear with us. He's patient with us again as we walk the Christian. He, he knows that we don't have it all together. That's, that's why we need him. And so he walks with us. He's patient with us. He bears with us. He believes all things, not that Jesus has to have faith, but Jesus already sees the end. In other words, he, he already knows what we're going to be. So therefore, he doesn't deal with us according to where we are right now, but he deals with us with the trajectory in view of who we're going to be when we're glorified and made perfectly in his image. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Earlier I spoke about my atheist friend and who said that if everybody kept the commandments that we, this world would be like heaven and on earth. Well, by, by the grace of God, this atheist friend came to know Jesus Christ. <laughs> Praise the God. Not only that, but she and her husband are now missionaries ready to go and spread the gospel to unreached people groups. I spoke to her not long after her conversion, and I was just blown away. Like, man, like, praise God, because I hadn't seen too many people who were as hard to the gospel as she was. And so I asked her, I said, what was it? Like, t t talk to me about this transformation in your life. And she said, you know what, Shy? When we got together for coffee and we talked about things like the Ten Commandments, you know, I, I, I saw the truth of what you said, and, and that was helpful when you explained the gospel to me. But the thing that really got me is when I came around the community of believers and I saw a group of people loving one another, loving one another without wanting anything in return, just out of the kindness of their hearts, giving of each other. what did it. And isn't that the scriptures? John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, 
Not if you're just merely doctrinally on point. Not if you got the do's and the don'ts down, Pat. But if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful to you. Behold, what manner of love is this? What manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God? Father, we thank you for love incarnated in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that he is the fulfillment of the law. We thank you for his life of love poured out on our behalf. God, may we, by your grace, live lives that demonstrate that we know you by the way that we love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.